Welcome to South Shore Piano, the official podcast of the South Shore Piano School. I'm your host, Jonathan Roberts, and on this podcast, we talk with students, parents, teachers, and other leaders to find out exactly how music education and the arts are changing lives every day. My guest today is Dr. Anita Collins, who is an award-winning educator, researcher, and author in the field of brain development and music learning. She is internationally recognized for her work translating the scientific research of neuroscientists and psychologists for the everyday parent, teacher, and student. Anita is the author of the book, The Music Advantage, which is a phenomenal read for parents and teachers everywhere. In the book, she digs into the research linking music learning to overall cognitive development and really makes the case for music learning being not just a nice thing to do, but truly essential for our overall development as humans. She's done such wonderful things for the musical community, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Anita, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be able to talk to people all over the world, so I'm very excited. Awesome. Well, first, I have to start by saying what a gift you have given the the music education community with everything that you've done, the TED Talk, the the book, The Music Advantage, just giving us some material that we can use because we're you know constantly sort of advocating for ourselves why music is as important as math or English or literacy, um, you know stuff like that. So uh, thank you first of all for uh, every, <laughs> everything that you've given to us, and um, I'd like to just take it all the way back from the beginning, how you sort of got started with music yourself as a child and how you decided that this was the trajectory that you were going to be on. Well, like most people, you don't decide. You kind of, <laughs> it kind of comes your way. Yes. Um, and you take the opportunity or you don't. And I think, um, I think for me, if I think about my musical journey as a musician, um, it very much started with just the, the regular school band program, which would be in here it's primary school, for you it's elementary school. Um, and I was just offered the opportunity to learn an instrument. It wasn't, it wasn't a compulsory program. Um, so I was lucky to gain entry into it. And I now understand, funny how the world turns around, but I now understand that um, I was very lucky to get entry because my reading scores were really low and one of the measures were high reading scores. But I think I was very good at trying. <laughs> so they yes. went, oh, she's very good at giving things a go. Let, let's see how she goes with this. And, and so at nine I was um, handed a clarinet. I was meant to be handed a flute. And I still remember I got to the door of the storeroom with a note that someone had written to say Anita needs a flute. And the teacher there turned around and said, well, we've got none of them left, but he's a clarinet, give it a go, which is ridiculous. <laughs> but, but, again, it was one of those serendipitous things because physically I'm far more suited to play clarinet than I ever would have been to play flute. Um, and when I looked at my, when I went to university to study clarinet, when I looked at the cohort of clarinet, it's like we were all shorter, we all had short stubby fingers, um, you know, bigger air capacity, all these sort of other things we, and very similar in character. And then I looked at the flute class and they were all tall and elfin looking and beautiful. <laughs> it's like I don't fit into that group but I fit into the clarinet group. Um, so I was very lucky and I think one of the things that happened for me is I had struggled at school because I was trying to hide that I couldn't read very well. I could read, but it was very laboured and it still is very, very difficult for me to do. And I was hiding a lot of things. But suddenly when I got onto playing the clarinet, this was the very first thing I experienced that was easy and good and I could be recognised for. 
And that fundamentally changed my view of myself as a learner. And I now really, really understand that now that I work with lots and lots of schools, how important that is for a, a learner who's who's not the bottom of, you know, is not right. getting support and all that sort of other stuff, but also not right at the top. The kids, most of the kids in the middle who start to get this idea that as a learner they're not very good because they can't read as fast as the fastest kids or they can't absorb a concept as quickly as they can. So I thought I was a poor learner and that started to reflect on me. Then suddenly I had this thing that I was getting recognised for being very good at and that fundamentally changed how I thought about myself and that point in my life changed the trajectory of my life completely because I changed what I thought of myself as a learner and then I also learned how to, I something clicked in my head and I learned how to read a lot better. And that changed things as well academically. So, yeah, it was. I was nine. I was in elementary school. I learnt the clarinet and I learnt in concert band. And interestingly, my very first concert band conductor was an American. Oh, um, okay. And he, he really indoctrinated me into that um, love of concert band music, which in a lot of countries it's always it's choir or it's orchestra. They're the big ones and then concert bands for all the others. Um, whereas he really, really taught me that beautiful concert band sound takes a lot of work, a lot of discipline. Um, and he just exposed me to heaps of those ideas as well as how a concert band could sound. So I will always be very thankful to him. That's so inspiring. So it sounds like as, as a child, you were behind with reading. How did that feel? Just sort of, it sounded like you were sort of a pro at navigating your way around, even though. You, you yeah. knew that <laughs> you were sort of putting I, on a show. Yeah, it's funny how it takes such a long time in your life to figure out the skills that you learnt when you were very young. I started to become, I learnt the skill, so hiding that I couldn't read as well meant I learnt how to read people a lot better. Oh, okay. So I would look, so I'd have the book in front of me, I still remember doing this, um, and I would I'd, there'd be a word that was coming up that I didn't quite know. I couldn't, it could have been maybe five or different possibilities. And for me, I had a really good memory because I'd go, oh, this one probably fits here. But I'd say the word or I'd start to say it and I'd look very carefully at the reaction of the person who was listening to me read. And then I could tell from them in a microsecond about whether I was on the right track or not and I could switch. So I became extremely good at reading um, nonverbal skills, which funnily enough, when I decided not to be a concert performer, I moved into being a conductor. And a conductor is all about nonverbal communication. Yes. So I just took those skills, those skills from one to the other. Um, and I surrounded myself with, and I still have them, um, four incredibly smart friends. And they didn't know I couldn't read very well, but hanging around them helps me pick up things far more quickly. So, um, yeah, I was just very lucky, but I... I watch kids now and I can see which ones are using the same tactics as me. That's so interesting how it, you know, something that happened when you were so young sort of fast forward and it applies to most of your work that you do now. So mm. cool. And then once you picked up the clarinet, it sounds like that had an impact on your identity as a learner. And then okay. some, as we'll get into uh, in a little bit, some sort of neurological things clicked with that. And then your reading skills improved. Mm. So interesting. So you you started to you your original track was to be a clarinet performance major. Is that correct? Yeah. So I was um, and I I did a performance degree, so a bachelor four year degree here in Australia, 
Um, I performed professionally with orchestras, um, not for very long, um, because I sort of, I did that for a, a couple of years and I just, I didn't want that life. And I didn't, and part of that life was the isolation of it to be in a room, for, uh, like to where I wanted to go. I needed to be in a, a room for 10 more years, just practicing. Right. Um, and I'm very, and I could think of many other things I wanted to do. And I think to be a concert performer, it has to be the, the the only thing you can really see yourself doing, right? Because of the dedication it requires. Where right? I could see myself doing many, many other things, and I had a huge interest in in um, through school in history and English and um, all sorts of different concepts. And I just went, I can see myself doing lots of other things. So I kind of came to a crossroads and said, Well, I know I don't want to do this but I'm trained, highly trained in music, what do I do? And I do remember uh, my parents, my mum is a teacher, but and I didn't realise it, but teachers have friends who are teachers. So I'd always been surrounded by teachers. And they just said, do a sensible thing, go and do a teaching degree, and then to figure out what you want to do. <laughs> and I kind of was at my, I didn't know what to do, so I went, oh, I guess I should, you know. Nature's I, backup, I, right? But, yeah, but I'm, <laughs> You know, what else do I do? So I went and did um, the sort of teaching add-on you can do here in Australia. And I still remember I was three weeks in and I was sitting in a lecture. I don't know what it was about. It was probably quite boring. But I I sat there going, I had one of those literally lightning bolt moments is this is exactly what I should be doing with my life. I should be teaching music because teaching music is not just teaching music. It's It's teaching humans how to be as highly functional as they possibly can. Yes. So, and and I still, I still believe that every single day. It's still such a privilege to be able to do that. So, yeah. And I moved into teaching, and then all of a sudden, I went, "Well, I don't want to be a performer, and I didn't want to play." And this is a very personal choice, but I didn't want to play at anything but the very highest level. So I didn't want to be in community music for me. Um, it was the right thing to to sort of go. No, I don't want to do that. But then I suddenly got thrown into conducting, <laughs> and I got thrown <laughs> into conducting in things like jazz bands and orchestras and choirs, which I was not trained in. So I again took my training across and went, okay, how do I how do I do this? How do I watch? How do I learn from others? And and I continue to learn all the time. Very cool. Now, how did how did this lead into delving into the field of neuroscience and all of the research that connects music learning to cognitive development that you're pretty much famous for now? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, again, wasn't totally planned. Um, I had been working at a school and I still work at the same school. So I just come from, um, it's morning here in Australia and I've just come from rehearsal first thing Monday morning with our, our top concert band. Um, and it's the first day of term, so they were totally asleep this morning and they <laughs> totally hadn't touched their instruments for two weeks. Um, but I had been there for 10 years. I, again, I sort of went, I can do more. So on a, it was really on a, a whim, someone sent me an ad for being a university lecturer. So I applied and I suddenly got it and I went, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't know how to teach teachers. Um, so, but I did and it was some of the most rewarding stuff I did. I did that for another 12 years and I still maintained being a teacher at the same time. So I still went to rehearsal in the morning and then I went to my lectures at, at half past nine. Um, but as part of that, the rules changed in Australia where you had to have a PhD in order to um, 
teach at university level, but oh. they gave us time to do it. So it's like as long as you started by this day, you know, you're fine. So I had to find a topic. And in Australia, we don't get our university system slightly different for that higher degree. We get to choose what we do, which is both a blessing and a massive curse <laughs> because you, you've got to go, what am I going to research? What am I going to do? As opposed to being handed a topic and handed a way of doing it. Um, so I was given two pieces of advice. One was choose something that everybody's researched so it's really easy. Everyone's done the work for you. You just place your lens across the top and, and you write from there. <laughs> yeah. And then the other piece of advice was um, choose a topic that you're going to love as much as the end at the end as you did at the beginning because at the end it's just hard slog. It's hard work. It's just it's just hard you don't love it, it is anymore. like marathon you, running <laughs> yeah yeah it's kind of like the and it's true the last little bit is like i just need to get this done yes um so i took the second piece of advice and mainly because it inspired me rather than the other one which just felt like ticking a box and i didn't like that idea uh and then i read uh i just read everything i possibly could for about nine months i just read and anything that came my way i just said throw me anything i'll wait for that moment of spark the spark came in a really strange way. So I read um, an article by Donald Hodges, who's an American and kind of like a pioneer in the field that I'm now in. And he had four neuroscientists he was talking to. And he said, if you would like music teachers to know anything about what it is that you do or that you found, what would it be? And I kept reading and reading and reading and reading. And by the end, I was furious. I was like, I don't need to know that stuff, but here's my list of things I would like to know. And I sat back and I went, oh, maybe that's the spark. Maybe the spark is not excitement. Maybe the spark is like this work needs to be done. Yes. And, yeah, so that sent me on the journey that all the other steps along the way of finding somebody who would supervise me who had like when there's no one around who does what I do right. <laughs> was very tricky. And, yeah, but in the end it was amazing. And since then I've been able to go and visit almost all of the researchers who I read their work, every single piece of work that comes out and I've got to sit with them and talk with them. And um, yeah, it's been an amazing journey. I'm very, very privileged. It's so, so interesting. And as I was reading the music advantage, it's so many more areas than I thought. I mean, I'm, I've always been advocating this stuff, but even I, and I've been doing this for a while, but I, even I didn't realize like all of these unbelievable connections that you illustrate so well and so clearly and what's clearly a very complex topic, but it sounds like, you know, music is basic, <clears throat> excuse me, music is basically one activity that sets off like fireworks in the brain and all of these other different areas. So I'm sure we could talk about any of those for a full hour, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, what are some of the, I think you were, there are sort of three main areas that uh, are, Please correct me if I have that wrong, but if I, I think there are sort of three big picture uh, areas that music uh, we found or you found or neuroscientists have found um, music really helps develop in children. Um, could you speak to those a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, for a very long time, there weren't these three sort of pillars. Um, it was just this massively long list of music learning helps this, 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 and that was almost at the detriment of it. Because it's like, well, how can one thing do so much? Right. And then it was funny. I was with one of my favourite researchers in, in this tiny little town in Germany um, and 
she for a second, I, I get to go and spend a couple of days with them and it takes that long for them to kind of get used to what I'm trying to do. And I interview everybody from the research assistant up to the professor and down again. Oh, wow. Um, but I was sitting, I was sitting with her and she's one of my favourite writers. I, like research is hard to read, but when you find the people you just go, oh, my God, you've made it so simple. Um, they're great. And she, and I said, I get this feeling from reading across that there are three pillars. And what was so nice is she went, we've just come to that conclusion too. And having three buckets instead of 50 buckets is a lot easier for people to get their heads around. Yes. And it's also really easy for the researchers to kind of go, right, we're going to look at this bucket and that's specifically where we are. So the three are music learning helps language development and music learning helps what's called executive function, which are all the, I call them grown-up skills. So they're just the skills that we develop through childhood in order to be a functional adult. And we, it, I don't send my 18-year-olds out with a tick going, <laughs> you have all these now, off you go, you can right. function in society. We constantly have to, we constantly have to deal with them. They're very, they're the most difficult things we have to deal with. Um, and then the, the last one is social skills. But those social skills aren't only kind of the explicit ones that we teach kids, not just please and thank you. It's, um, it's all those very nuanced ones of, like I said before, me being able to read someone's reaction even before they had it. Um, being able to understand when it's our turn to speak in a conversation. Being able to understand when someone says something, if they're telling the truth or they're lying or they're hiding something. Those very, very human, very uh, intuitive skills, which end up being the ones that, when we look at job applications, they're very explicit, you know, you must be able to do this, this and this, but you can't, you can only tell when someone doesn't have them. <laughs> it's like when they're missing all the cues. So, yeah, those three. And to me, they really beautifully sort of talk about what we, what we work to accomplish in school or in childhood, not just in school, but as we raise children, both parents and teachers and society in general. Um, we, language is... is the the very start even before language is not just reading language is being able to articulate yourself choosing the right word for the right time putting the words in the right order so that they express the meaning that you need them to something called prosody or prosody that's said in two different ways but it's that all that information that's underneath the words that tells us if someone's telling the truth or lying or there's a there's a inferred idea in the Sort of the, the, the example I always use is um, before we had mobile phones and we'd pick up the phone and someone would say hello, we would know who they were. So we'd know their language, their, their auditory signature for their voice. Right. But strangely enough, if it was your mother often or a parental person who sort of had that, that position, you would not only know who it was, you would know what mood they were in just by saying hello. And that's what that's that's the tiny little nuance that language music particularly teaches that because being able to hear the difference between you know a D when you strike it on a piano that's struck in in the wrong way and then in the right way is so minor, but that ability to hear the difference and feel the difference then transfers across to to language because music and language are an overlapping neural network so they're connected from the very beginning of our lives. So communication is important. The executive function one I think is my favourite because if I send my students out into the world and they can plan what they're going to do in a day, they can come up with different strategies to solve a problem, 
if they can manage their own emotions but also understand and have empathy for other people's emotions and their their situations um, who can communicate well from an emotional point of view who can pay attention who can focus you know, all this there's a huge list but if I send them out into the world with those mostly intact or at least an understanding of which ones are really challenging for them then I know I've done my job as an educator I've, I know I've helped produce a human not a musician a human right um, so that's that's for me such an it underpins every part of, of what we do in childhood for children and then as I said the social skills are really what takes those kids through life having productive relationships friendships um, close relationships relationships with their own children relationships with other children um, understanding their own internal conflicts as they travel through the different stages of their lives as they deal with grief um, as they do with trauma, you know, there's so much that it provides the underpinnings, the foundation to then go on and experience all the things that we know will happen in life. So that's why it's important to me because it's giving them, it, there's a saying, it's, it's music learning is the gift that keeps on giving because it gives all the way through life. It's not yes. just the making of the music, we've, we've made a human. And I think that's, that's what's important to me. There's so much powerful, deep stuff that we could probably unpack for hours and hours. <laughs> what you just said over the last few minutes. I love it all. I have a question about, I'm curious about the research process. And I, I know this is not going to be a simple question. Because I remember when I was in, when I was in high school, if I ever wanted to do like a science project or an experiment that involved people, the teacher would throw it out immediately and say, yeah, you exactly. need to do it with too many people. There are all these other variables. Just do something with um, fruit or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So how, how, how um, as best as you can describe in a short time, uh, how, how does one come to something that's even somewhat conclusive with this sort yeah. of research in cognitive development? Yeah. So the difference we have scientific research and social science research and social science research is with humans and how they behave and science is with fruit for example it's with like <laughs> and, and this neuromusical research crosses over in many many cases and so you have this problem that and, and i get this question a lot why you know what's the one study that shows that music learning benefits the brain and it's like you can't do that in the scientific method the, because human every human is is a variable basically right. and as much as they control for it it's you can't say this is you know this is the be all and end all so yeah so for me as a researcher and a, a reader across the field i look at how all the different types of studies are playing into each other. They are, there's a currently a massive argument going on between um, a whole bunch of statisticians and then a whole bunch of neuromusical researchers who are arguing about what's been found and the impact level of that finding. That's a really important argument because it will propel the research further forward again to be as good as it possibly can be. Um, one of the biggest issues they had at the start, and this was kind of a misunderstanding, and, and I wish they'd talked to music educators sooner, yes. uh, is they would say, we're going to compare a group of musicians and a group of non-musicians, and then we're going to make them do the same task, and then we're going to see how their brains react differently. Really simple idea. The problem is how they chose or defined musician 
Uh. And, you know, is it someone who's, so it started, of course, that a lot of research in the US is done using participants who are college um, students, and they get credit for that. Um, but the problem comes with, okay, well, is a musician someone who's learnt for five years or eight years or 10 years or did 10,000 hours or did 2,000 hours or were they in an ensemble or did they sing as well? There's so many different things. And they just weren't very careful to start with. They just went, if you class yourself as a musician, which is an interesting idea, then right. we'll put you in the musician group. So we had this problem of what do you mean by musician? And it, it meant that we couldn't apply the findings into the classroom or into the instrumental studio because of this big fault they had. They figured it out and they went, we need to get better at this. So then they started defining a lot more about this group of musicians are informal learners, for example, or these ones are um, people who've learned really formally. They even do it by genre now. So these are all oh. classical musicians or jazz musicians. Um, they've done one on guitarists. They've done one on drum kit players. <laughs> they've done all sorts of things. And then the next problem that comes in it is then when you, that's with grown-ups or with adults, when you start working with kids, as you said, there's so many ethical issues and, and considerations. You have to be super careful. And part of that issue of going, well, let's take a whole bunch of six-year-olds and we'll give half of them music and half of them no music, that's an equity question. Why do some right. get an opportunity and some don't get an opportunity? So then they started to say, well, we'll only pick the kids who picked music. And it's like, well, then they're more predisposed to, to like and learn music. So, possibly, you know, so there's all these things as we've gone through the ups and downs that come very, very naturally with research. Um, they've tried to get better and better at choosing um, how they choose the groups, how the kids are either they choose to do music, but now they are randomly assigned. So they're literally pulled out of a hat. And, okay. you know, it's like you're going to play music, you're going to play, not you're not going to do music. And they've added a third, always a third activity in there now, which is you're going to learn something else. And it's often sport because sport and music are often compared as, well, they're the same thing. And they're not <laughs> at <Right>. all. <laughs> but kids, kids don't need either or. They need both. And I think this research is starting to show us that. So you're right. It's a massive question and field and something in the book that I've really tried to at least start to point to that when you read a headline or a, a sort of a, you know, a great advocacy statement, it's actually really important to ask how did they get there? Who was in their participant group? How many were there? How old were they? What did you do? Um, so that we as teachers and also as parents are really informed about what the research means. So my work is very much about trying to help people in bite-sized amounts understand that the really, really complex part of the research because the researchers do their research to understand the brain. They don't do it to understand um, music learning or the process of it. That's our expertise uh, and that's somewhere where we, we know best how to apply it. Absolutely. And my understanding is when neuroscientists started to see this sort of fireworks in the brain and they sort of pursued it, they weren't necessarily pursuing it to see sort of the most effective way people learn music so much as to literally like just study how the brain works because music has such a dramatic impact. Do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. They, they just basically saw it as a tool to better understand how the brain functioned. And it's a really important definition of or distinction, sorry, I should say, as as we go through and look at the research, they're not looking at this way of teaching is better than this way of teaching. They're using it as a tool. It's our job to 
take the research and either see if it can be applied in a classroom or if it shouldn't be. And I think that's also another important message is sometimes research is just research and it stays over there and and we are experts in our field and we can apply what we have a whole bunch of other research that we've done just by being in a classroom, just by being a teacher. Right. And I think it was another podcast interview. You mentioned that in our work as educators, it's almost like we're neuroscientists ourselves <laughs> sort yeah, of observing. Absolutely observing our students on a, on a regular basis. I thought, thought that was such an interesting parallel. Yeah, what strikes me is when I read a lot of the research, I go, well, that's what this particular method uses and this is why it works. So, so much of what we've done is we've figured out through trial and error what the neuroscientists are just saying, this is now why it works. We're now going to give you more information about why it works, but you already know it works. So... It's not, it's not a new way of doing things. It's a new way of understanding what it is that we do. Absolutely. And I, I love how clearly you wrote the book. I, <laughs> as one who's not like super science technical, I really, I really found it such a fascinating read. I'm curious, when you wrote the book, did you have mainly parents in mind or teachers or both? Um, or everyone? Yeah, <laughs> I even had, I had students in mind too. So more senior students sort of understanding I mean, the book was primarily for, for parents, um, but I teach, te I still teach teachers now and a lot of teachers are parents and it's kind of like they're not, they're not two separate groups of people, they just have different roles. Right. And I think for me, I mean, part of the, the structure of the book is I tell lots and lots of stories that sort of any of us could have seen through our career but also uh, parents could have seen with their own children or with other children. Um, and to get them to go, oh, I've seen that, and then try and use the science and say, now this is what you you think you saw or you think you understood and this is how the science is giving us a bit more information about that or in some cases telling us it's exactly the opposite. So it's about the learning experience has to be seen as an experience. It's not these one-off things. It's it's a whole thing to, and together. And one of our great, um, we're incredibly privileged as uh, music educators because we get to teach students often for multiple years together right there's not many other not even sports coaches you know if they move from the under 11 soccer team to the under 12 soccer team they get a different coach right if you yes. move from one band or one choir to the next you've often got the same the same teacher so we get to watch this development happen over time through the lens of what we teach and the musical experience so we're very very lucky but that's why I think we're our own researchers. Yeah, absolutely. So to take it sort of into the classroom now, we have all this wonderful research and there's, there's clearly a correlation between music education, cognitive development, which sort of leads now to the next question of how you define music education, <laughs> uh, <laughs> particularly with the, with, the, with the youngest students, which I know in itself could be a number of podcast episodes. But <laughs> sort of from, from what you've learned from the research, if, if there is sort of an ideal trajectory, um, you know, how might you describe that, particularly with the younger age groups? Yeah, it's no one's gone this is the type of music education that improves cognitive function and it is possible to teach music and not improve cognitive function if you're only doing it by totally by rote if you're not helping the students understand it if you're not if you're only doing it right. the same kind of way you're not going to get that cognitive development but so i'm sort of piecing it together and it continues to evolve but what i've found so far is the three things that kids have to experience all the time is singing moving and playing on an instrument 
Mm-hmm. So pl- making music external to their body, singing and moving. Now, in early childhood years, sort of before the age of five, that's totally understandable. Like that's what kids are doing naturally. Right. But what I found interesting is then going, okay, well, when do my students in concert band do singing and moving? Because that's not part of the way we teach. Um, so part of it is how do we incorporate and some of the best methods use that, you know, I get my students to, they're not allowed to play the, the music until they can sing it in tune. So we, oh. do, we do more singing in rehearsal than we do playing. Um, and they're getting quicker and quicker at it because <laughs> they're like, we just want to get onto our instruments. We want to do this singing stuff. But they realise that the, they learn more music by doing the singing first. And even the moving part, we do lots of physical, like if my trumpets can't play in time, I make them march around the room in time together and then they come back down and they sit and suddenly they can play in time. So, yeah, singing, moving and an instrument. And that instrument is needs to be age appropriate. So right. we're not giving a trombone, play, trombone to a five-year-old. We're right. giving them early childhood percussion and piano and small violins and all those sorts of things. And then as they, they grow into their instruments, so it's about progressing through. Um, a lot of parents ask about time, how long. And a lot of school leaders ask about that. It's like, how long, what's the least, I hate this question, what's the least amount of time they need to get the cognitive <laughs> development that's permanent? And it's like, I don't like your question, but I will explain it. Um, from a scientific point of view, they found at the very least it needs to be somewhere between two and three years, and that's consistently. So every single week, rehearsals, lessons, um, performing, all those sorts of things. Um, the gold standard, though, is probably five to seven years. and okay. But that's not five to seven years on a violin. That's sort of, that could be... Uh, early childhood sort of Kodian off style in a classroom. They've got their xylophones, they've got the percussion instruments, they're singing, they're moving for two years, followed by a recorder for a year, still singing and moving, you know, followed by a clarinet for two years. That's your five years altogether. Um, so time is an important one. Yes. They need to read notation. So that's an interest, that's a really that one no, that one's me. a hot topic among yeah. <laughs> music. Yeah, I get a lot of teachers like, oh, no, I was fine with your other, other ones, but I'm not okay with this one. <laughs> like, okay, I get it, but let me explain. And the reason is because reading music and making sound is exactly the same neural pathway as reading words. So it's called the phonological loop, which in language, but it's basically called the sound to symbol system in music. So we see a sound, we see a symbol, sorry, on a page, a, sort of a crotchet. Um, Eighth note for us. Right. Yeah, is that a quarter it. note? I get them mixed up all the time. Oh, yeah, so sorry, get- <laughs> quarter note. Yeah, quarter note. Let me, let me switch into my American terms. Um, we hear that sound in our head, which is really interesting. We can now record what the brain hears, but not through our ears. So our auditory processing network goes, that's what that symbol sounds like. We then talk to our body to make that sound through the instrument. So either it's on a violin, going across, blowing into an instrument, putting our fingers in the right place. As soon as we make the sound, it goes straight back into our ears and we check it with our auditory processing network with our big library on our head and say, was that right? Is that how it should have sounded? Do I need to do it again? So that's what we do in music. Language is the same. We see a word or we see a letter, goes through the same process. Um, 
the reason it's important to, to include that for students, particularly when they're young, is because reading music to the human brain is harder than reading words because there's so much more going on. Like you might, you might be reading your note on the clarinet, but you've got a percussion player behind you who's playing a different rhythm. You've got a flute player next to you who's playing a different note. You know, there's so much more going on. So the brain thinks that's really hard. So when it gets to reading words, it goes, oh, I've done this before. This is super easy. Nowhere near as complex as music. I can read words. So that's why it's really, really important, even if they're simple symbols, but it needs to be a connection between um, symbol to sound. And unfortunately, tab or tablature isn't the same. <laughs> so <count>. the brain <laughs> sees, no, the brain sees a tab, the tablature sort of um, symbol as if it's a picture. And then it talks to our, so we do it a lot in guitar, it talks to our fingers and says, put your fingers here, and then we make the sound, but it bypasses the auditory processing in our brain. So it's not exactly the same. Um, and then the last three, are we need to have lessons, we need to have ensemble, and we need to have performance. And the reason is they all have different roles. Lessons, what I mean by that is a small group lesson, you know, four trumpet players together, but it's about walking you through the process of learning, that little sort of, scaffolded experience of this is the next note we learn and then we put it into a tune and then we put it into a longer tune and then we do a round and then we learn our next note so that's what that process is ensemble learning or or learning in a concert band or learning orchestra is about communicating socially but without words so understanding how to share a common beat um, which we now know actually aligns our heartbeats and our body temperatures so as soon as we're actually playing on the beat together, which as musicians, we all know that feeling of like, oh, there we go, we're in sync. Right. We actually physically are in sync. So our, our whole bodies go, I am aligned to everyone else in this room, which I think is amazing. Yes. Um, so we need ensembles for all those reasons, nonverbal communication, all our executive functions get developed in there. And then we need performance to, to deal with stress and anxiety to go, right. This is really stressful. I'm really scared. <laughs> but I'm going to do this because the rest of the orchestra is walking on and I've got to go on as well. And you do, you actually experience small amounts of stress, small amounts of discomfort. I call it microdosing on discomfort um, multiple times a year within a group so it's safe. So all of these many ingredients, which are naturally occurring in the music learning experience, they contribute to different parts of our cognitive development. But our, our brain is so hyper-connected that one thing over here will affect another thing over here in a way that we might not be able to anticipate. So it's about the fact that it's all wrapped up together. Yeah, absolutely. Again, so much amazing stuff there that I'd love to like dig into every single one. <laughs> but I, was, I, I would love to um, go back a couple steps with the, the reading stuff that I find so intriguing because it sounds like they're, they're both working the same system. So you basically get like sort of a double bang for your cognitive buck as a yeah. kid when you're, when you're reading music, but it sounds like the, the foundation of all that kind of like how we learn written language is that being able to sing in tune and being able to uh, move, move to music. Cause without that, you don't have that sound image from which to, to read uh, music from and yeah. as you were talking about your experience with reading as a kid it reminded me of we've all had many students over the years who have 
managed with with reading but it turns out they have all of these little tricks <laughs> so instead yeah. of saying like okay this is an f and a g and they're here they think okay yeah. this blob means do this and the teacher yeah. will be happy <laughs> that sort yeah, of thing yeah it, that's basically what it is but that's that's problem solving at its very basis if i don't quite get it but if i think around the problem i might be able to solve it yeah absolutely so let's say um you know, if if a, a child has sort of missed the boat in those first five, six, seven years or for whatever reason, didn't get the these opportunities for singing, moving, stuff like that. Can can one check, you know, can one catch up or is there like a deadline from which like, OK, now we're sort of stuck? <laughs> <There's> no return. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good question because a lot of the research I know I get stuck on if we do it at this age, this is what it's developing. But there's been a lot of research done with. Um, some of my favourite research is the ones with, uh, I have to remember, it would be middle school, so the sort of 12, 13, 14-year-olds. Um, if, if they haven't been able to, their reading is still quite poor, they've put in um, music programs in order to improve. It improves two things. One is the language circuits for sure, but a lot of these kids haven't been able to learn language because their executive function is poor. So they, oh, okay. they're quite interconnected. Um, and it, they've had enormous success, absolutely not. You know, taking these kids to every other literacy intervention hasn't worked, which is almost like why we're allowed, it's like, well, we don't know what else to do with these kids, so, yeah, sure, give music a go. But it turns out that it has assisted with that rewiring or that reconnection or the, the synchronicity that is missing from their brains um, and has helped them um, improve their reading but the main thing it does first is improve their confidence in themselves as a learner so they're more willing to take a risk when they read so by that age by you know 12 13 14 you're pretty scared about reading because it's like I you know everyone else has been doing this for six years I can't do it right um, so it first of all improves their confidence and then it takes a little while. And these are interventions that need to go on for 18, 18 months to 24 months. Okay. But it, it, they do click in and you can see when they actually do it and they start to, you know, they write more than one sentence or more than one line. They can re read words they couldn't read before. And as soon as that happened, the reward networks get set off in our brains. It's like, you got it right, do it again. And what's interesting is, Music, learning music, playing music is is more um, closely connected to our reward network. So that's why we love it so much because oh, okay. it actually sets off our own little drug lab in our brain to go, wow, that was great. Let's do that again. Let's listen to more music. So by setting that off, we think that that's also connected to the reading part as well. So we're improving the pathway. You're absolutely right. So one of the researchers described it really well. She said it goes from being a little country lane that if it rains, like the country lane's gone, right. to being a six-lane highway with a big dome over the top so that you can go really fast. Oh, okay. so we're, going, we're going from a yes. laneway to, to this huge highway um, and we're making that highway permanent. So I've really liked that research. They've also done exactly the same thing with... Uh, I don't know what you call them, but they're young offenders, so 18, 19, 20, who, okay. um, who are in prison. Mm -hmm. And it's been identified that the main thing, one of the main things that, that's happened for them is that illiteracy has led to 
um, different choices in their lives that have ended up in jail. So they've actually done music programs in prisons, which have been specifically for um, assisting with literacy development. They've done it with older adults as well, people well into their 30s, um, who again, you know, missed that window and then the education system didn't find the key to help them until they reach well into adulthood. So there is not as much research because it's, again, we're remembering why they're doing this research because that's for a social or a public health outcome versus an understanding how the brain works. Uh, There's less of that research, but it's very, very powerful. Um, And again, music's been used as a therapy for a very, very long time. So it's like, well, now we kind of understand why it works. So this is bringing together music as a therapy to me for an educational outcome. So it's it's bringing those two things a lot closer together. So, yeah, there's no missing the boat. And if anything, we now understand that it's even more important to do it the later on through life you get. So yes. taking up an instrument's a great idea. Excellent. I, I love it. And it reminds me of one one uh, story you mentioned your, in your book. I'd love, love to dive into briefly. You write about how the ability to keep a beat has essentially been tied to literacy skill uh, or, um, yeah, literacy skills. And there's yeah. one story in the book you mentioned that you're, you're with a group of teachers who are starting to sort of incorporate this musical training in their classrooms, if I remember it right. And you were all watching a video of all these students yeah. and you basically paused the video and said, okay, does this child have some issues with, you know, inhibition control or is this, this mm-hmm. person antsy? And you were, it was like having a crystal ball. <laughs> so I know. If they, I had they, that right. So you could basically yeah. tell from how they were moving and singing to music you could sort of see see into their their other areas. Um, I'd I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, so it's funny that I've used I've been given permission to, and it's been wonderful to use that exact same video as I teach teachers about this research. So I do I I don't tell them what it is. So I'd say this child has this this and this as as some of the issues with their learning. I say watch, see what you think, and let's go from there. And they come up with exactly the same thing. So one of the kids I always pick um, is he's behind the beat when he's doing So he's clapping. They're all singing a, a little sort of chant song. Um, he's not singing, first of all. And the next thing is he's really behind the beat and he can't, he goes to cross his hands over and he can't do it. So this, uh. that's automatically an indication because to do that, to keep a beat, this side has to talk to this and this side has to talk to this, but then they have to coordinate across. So if he can't cross, it means that the combination across here is uh, the corpus callosum is not working very well. So this, you know, immediately they come up with, um, is he a little bit behind in his his reading and he's quite slow with completing something because he doesn't know what the next step is? And that's exactly where, where he was at at the time. He didn't. He, he would get started on sort of writing something and then he'd get stuck on one thing and he couldn't get past it and it was because some sort of message hadn't made it from one side to the other. Uh, he couldn't cross the midline and he also was, um, he couldn't keep up with the beat. So he was a little bit behind the beat. So what that thing is called is prediction. So in order to put a beat in the right place, you've got to predict how far your hands have to go out and at what speed they need to be back in again. So that's predicting what's going to happen. So when we read, we predict what word should come next. And that's when really good writing is there because you don't have to work very hard to predict because it just seems to flow. Rhythm is a bit the same. You kind of know what rhythm should come next. 
So all these problems he had, he said, okay, well, if we work harder on his beekeeping crossing the midline, which is this this bit here, how's that going to impact on him? So they, the teacher did exactly that. She started every single, not every day, even every lesson, she did some beekeeping with them and she watched him really carefully and helped him out and got him to be to predict how far he needed to go out to come back in. And she really noticed that his reading ability changed very quickly once he'd figured out how to predict. So for him, it was a prediction problem. And as we went down the line, these kids were all sitting on a line and on stage and we could we could spot the kid who was ADHD before he was even diagnosed. And it was like, <laughs> That's awesome. was like so is he and I said, no, he didn't have ADHD at the time, but then he was diagnosed six months later. So, and part of that was the rhythm. He was fine for a little bit. And then part of ADHD is a mistiming between the eyes, ears and body or auditory visual motor. And you could see all of a sudden his attention just went, turned off, and he just started going, which is a, it's, it's kind of like, for me, it's a visualisation of the timing on the, tri- I talk about it as a triangle, keep going, is fine, and then the timing gets out and it's just like going too fast, and that's what's on the outside of their body. So suddenly they had this extra tool that they could go into their music class with and say, I'm seeing this with this student and these are the following things that they're struggling with and if I can assist with this, can you watch out and see what happens with, with this sort of learn, this particular learning or this particular skill? It suddenly brings together the classroom teacher and the music teacher to work for the betterment of the child, whereas in our curriculums and our timetables, we're often really separated. So the, right. the kids go off to music class the teacher doesn't see what they're doing. The teacher and the music teacher doesn't see what they're doing in normal class. It's a really separated experience, but it's the same child. Right. So suddenly this starts a conversation and a support network and mechanism to help them understand how beat connects with all of the other learning. So most of the kids that have struggled with their executive function or their language will not be able to keep a beat consistently. So it's an uh, it's the cheapest, easiest way to diagnose a learning difficulty, and then figure out how to fix it. Yes, there's so much exciting, promising stuff in there. I absolutely love it. So this sort of research seems like the kind of thing that you should be able to show a parent or a school administrator or anybody, and they say, "Oh my gosh, we have to get everybody in music like right away." Yeah. Does that happen at all? <laughs> <laughs> um it, it that this is this is the gap this is the moment that fascinates me it's like here is all of this research here are all of these findings here are i'll give it to you in statistics i'll give it to you in narrative i'll give it to you however would you like it but then there's a gap there's a moment when the person receiving it goes no i don't no it's not enough for me or i don't believe it or i don't think so and it's like how does that happen but The answer is that there's a lot of myths and thinking in that little gap that kick in. A lot of it has to do with um, the the receiver, the person you're speaking to, their own musical experience, whether it's their own personal one or the one of their own children. Mm -hmm. And that can be both really positive and really negative. Right. And it also, for a parent particularly, can be driven by, I never had this opportunity and I want to really make sure that my child has it. And that can also be both positive and quite negative too. So there's a a moment, that gap, and that's the gap I do all my work in. It's literally a millisecond. 
Um, so it's what's their experience. It's their preconceived ideas of why we why every child learns music in school. And it's the idea that you learn music to become a musician mm-hmm. and there's no other option. Right. And I sit there going, do you learn maths to become a mathematician? It's like, no, yeah. you learn because you need to like have, you need to be able to count change and you need to be able to, to think mathematically. And it's like, well, your thinking doesn't make sense. So we've, we've railroaded ourselves into this idea in education that you study a subject in order to have a career out of it, which is quite an industrial idea and it's right. not where we're at anymore. So I think for me a lot of what I'm working with is trying to go, we study music, yes, to make musicians, but only a very small number of those will choose that path. But we study and learn music in order to give every child the opportunity, opportunity cognitive foundations to do whatever they want to and music is the tool to do that. So, and I do understand and I appreciate it deeply that that will grate against quite a number of people. It's like, why can't we experience, why can't we just teach music because it's great? Right. And I agree. <laughs> it's a wonderful, gorgeous art form that I have, you know, founded my life around. But not uh, the other thing I then stopped to think is not that many people have had an experience like mine so they've got nothing to base their thinking on. Right. So how do I help them understand with no previous experience how music can help their child to develop into the future, what, what gift it gives and continues to give through life? So it's that moment, that gap <laughs> that I love so much to try and figure out how do you sway, how do you use research to sway someone to think again about the beliefs and myths and understandings that they currently hold and how they might change. And that's just not one time. They need to hear it a lot and they need to hear it in different ways and they need to hear it at really poignant points and then they need to hear it with an open listening um, in order to change minds. Absolutely. And that's actually one reason we started this podcast (laughs) so that people would be able to hear these sort of stories and messages on a regular basis and, um, you know, just be able to hear these same sort of messages again and again. So I I love that alignment there. Now, for for folks who want more of this, you have a website called Bigger Better Brains. I do. Tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, Bigger Better Brains was actually the title of my PhD. And ah. because every time I read something, I, I used to scribble in the margin and say, musicians' brains are bigger, musicians' brains are better. And so it became the title of it. And it's morphed into um, a whole series of things that are there to help mostly teachers, but parents as well, um, understand the science and share the science. So we have lots of things like we, we produce things you can share on social media, which are just the really good quotes from from the research, but we always make sure that we attach where the research has come from. So I think a lot of our problem in the past is we've had this big, sweeping, wonderful statements, but they're not connected to anything. So they right. there's a sort of lack of proof. proof to it, yeah. Um, we I, I write um, a reading every single month that sort of goes to teachers and I take a piece of the research Um, And I go, okay, let's talk about how this might look in a classroom or how you might talk about this to a school leader or a funder um, or a grant giver, someone like that. I'm just about, just as soon as I finish talking to you, I'm going to write the next one about how executive function can be developed in 
six and seven year olds and how music is different to sport. Like what are the ah. similarities, but what are the differences yes. that make it just as vital to do both? Um, we have lots of posters. Our posters are really, so this is called what we call stealth advocacy. So just lots of things on the walls <laughs> that are related to the research, but also kind of speak to not music is, you know, music is great for, we've got so many of them, but, you know, uh, music helps with uh, autistic kids in the following kinds of ways. Music helps with numeracy development in the following kinds of ways. Um, just to start getting all the language out there. And yeah. I think my next big step is while I've been working a lot with teachers, I want to start helping teachers to work with students. So starting to get the students to have a language around what's happening inside their brains um, to understand and give words to what is it that hasn't worked very well at the moment um, and how to fix it. And I think I, my students are my, my little guinea pigs, but I think yes. I did a good thing the other day. <laughs> I started talking to one of the students and he said, stop, and he put his hand up, he went, stop, and he closed his eyes. And so I just stopped all of a sudden and I went, okay, I'll see what's going to happen here. He had this closed eyes. Went, okay. It's fine. My brain and I have had a chat and we're okay now. We're going to go and do this. And it's sort of like they love that. They love they love understanding their own learning process. And I want to start working with teachers to help sort of figure out how do we how do we speak to students about this so they become the best advocates of all when it comes to music learning. So trying to trying to get that process going. But there's it's a huge number of um, resources. COVID was actually great for us. We got stuck in the one place and we went, oh, what are we going to do now? So we just made so many resources that um, teachers can can continue to use um, and, and ways of working with them as well that will mean that it's going to resonate with a school leader or it's going to resonate with that difficult teacher who won't let the kids out of class right. to go to their music lessons. How do you work with them to help them better understand? Absolutely. And we'll include all of the links, Bigger Better Brains, uh, your website, any way that people can get connected with you in the show notes, because uh, all of this work you're doing is just so important and just so awesome. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> Anita, this has been such a thought-provoking, interesting, hopeful, exciting conversation. I had no idea. I mean, I had some idea, but I didn't have nearly like this much idea of how important this work is and how important music education is for students not you know just because music is a nice creative thing i'll be able to connect with other people but literally to develop to develop them as humans uh so thank you so much for a, a terrific conversation thank you so much for being on the podcast today thank you for having me thank you to all of our listeners again this is south shore piano the official podcast of the south shore piano school where we talk with students parents, teachers, and other leaders like Anita about exactly how music education is changing lives every day. If you enjoyed this, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on the podcasting app of your choice. Or if you're checking out the YouTube version, click that subscribe button and the notification bell so that you're among the first to find out about new episodes. We publish new episodes every Monday and Friday. Thanks so much, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time.